You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. Ed Glick, a professor emeritus in UNT's Department of Media Arts. Dr. Glick received his PhD at the University of Michigan in speech communication, radio television. He also received his master's in music literature from the University of Michigan and his bachelor's in music at Boston University. Ed has produced radio and television programs broadcasted on commercial and non-commercial stations throughout the United States and as a former director of the Broadcast Education Association. He was named the 2010 Educator of the Year by the Texas Association of Broadcasters, an impressive award presented to individuals who have significantly contributed to the success of the broadcast industry in Texas and whose personal and professional conduct sets a standard of excellence to be emulated. A teacher here at OLLI, and last but not least, Ed is a World War II veteran. Thank you for your service and welcome. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. Wow, you served in Europe during World War II. I'd love to hear about that. Were you in the Army? Yes. It was interesting because when I graduated from high school, I was only 16 years old. That happened because my birthday was in May, so I started early. And the other reason was that I must have been bright at that time because I did three grades in in two years. So anyway, at 16, I had to wait two years before I could be drafted. The war was already on. This was graduated from high school in 1942, and I had to wait until 1944 when I would have turned 18. And so I worked for uh, a while as a shipping clerk in a beauty parlor supply house. It was run by Mr. Samuel Bernstein. And the only reason I bring this up now is because Samuel Bernstein was the father of Leonard Bernstein, the famous Lenny Bernstein. Wow. And I remember once that he had just had that exciting time when he filled in at the last minute on the air conducting the New York Philharmonic Orchestra that uh, Bruno Valta, the conductor, was out, and he was the assistant. And he did a great job, so finally he became the famous Lenny Bernstein. And so one day he came to visit his dad, and I was a horn player. I had studied French horn, and I was going to Boston University to play in the orchestra. I took time off from work. And there weren't a lot of men around that time. They were in the Army, so they were glad to have me. So one time, Lenny, who had just become famous, came to visit his dad. And I was going out to go to the Boston University College of Music to play at the rehearsal. 
and he came down the elevator at the same time. And he saw that I was carrying a, a horn, a French horn. He said, oh, I've come here to do my new symphony, the Jeremiah Symphony. And we were right on the busy Boston downtown street. And he said, yeah, I wrote these crazy horn parts. And he started singing these crazy horn parts in an uninhibited voice. And people looked around. Of course, most of these people had never heard of a Leonard Bernstein and that he was famous. And I sort of shrunk and shrunk. But after a while, I got away from these people. And that was it. So anyway... What an uh, experience. That's amazing. <laughs> that was my only experience with Lenny Bernstein. I can call him Lenny because his dad called him Lenny. Right. Anyway, I had to wait for a couple of years until I was old enough to go in the Army. And I think throughout my whole life, things have happened that have been good. All of these twists and turns, almost all of them turned out to be very good. So when I turned 18, I was signed up for the draft and was waiting to be called. And usually you have to wait six months or so to be called. But I thought, listen, why don't I go to, to the draft ward right now? If I fail, if I have bad eyesight, then I could start college. And if I didn't, what difference has six months made? Well, it turned out that six months made a tremendous difference. It might even have saved my life. Really? Because when I went for the physical exam and I passed it in spite of my eyes, I found out that it's a good thing that I was under 18 and a half because at that time there was a rule, regulation in the draft ward that anybody who was under 18 and a half would go in something other than the infantry. So I went into the artillery. Now, the artillery piece I worked on, the 105s, were small, the smallest, but we were about a mile and a half behind the infantry, and they were protecting us. What a difference. If the Germans wanted to get us, they had to go through the infantry. And not only that, whenever we went places, we rode. We were in the back of the uh, truck. It was an open truck, hard wooden benches. And then we saw the infantry with their packs, 60-pound packs and a rifle, slogging behind us. But we rode. So it was a good thing that for some reason I didn't know why. I got in there early enough so that I became artilleryman instead of infantry. And probably one of the reasons why I may be alive now. Very well could be. So the Army was a good experience for me. I grew up in a closely knit group of people and lived in an apartment house. Very few people owned houses at that time. The only one we knew that owned a house, they owned a grocery store. They could afford it anyway. Where were you from? Boston. I was happy to get in there and to uh, have these opportunities I wouldn't have had otherwise. I heard you say that it helped you later with school and the GI Bill, that kind of thing. Right. Well, first of all, I went into the artillery. And for six months of combat, I was an artilleryman helping to aim and pull the lanyards on the guns. And then when it was over, we were primarily watching over the the Germans in the villages until professional people came there. They had set up, the Army had set up something to keep us busy while we were getting sent home. And they had an education program. The lowest level was being at your company level, maybe learning to spell, to learn English, whatever. But the highest level was to go to a foreign country, another country, to study. And I was sent to England to study at the Guildhall School of Music to study horn. What an opportunity. And so the first day I went down there to meet my new teacher, there was a young guy, turned out later he was only five years older than I. I was 19. He was 24. He was still in his RAF uniform. He still hadn't gotten out of the service. Really a nice guy, very plain spoken, friendly. He said, I'm Dennis Brain. And I said, Mr. Brain, good to see you. I didn't know until later that this young man that I was talking to was the most famous and most idolized French horn player in the world. 
Oh His father goodness. had been the first horn, the principal horn of the BBC, so he started learning horn from the very beginning, and he was a natural. And if you were a French horn player, and I said to you, I studied with Dennis Brain. Oh, that's like I would fall off my God. chair. Yes. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately, I never became good enough to come anywhere near him. And that's when I decided that maybe there were other things for me to do. And that's why I never did become a French horn player professionally. Except playing band concerts, I joined the union at Boston Local 9. And every Monday morning, we'd all go to there and look around for contractors. I got a job. Hey, go see him. He's got a job. And so I got to be playing horn in these band concerts in the park. We got $8 to play that concert. We didn't rehearse. We just went there and played. And it was good enough. I can just picture that in my mind. Well, there was one thing that they gave us besides the GI Bill, which I'll talk about in a minute. But they had what they call the 5220 Club. 5220 meant that the Veterans Affairs paid veterans $20 a week for 52 weeks to help them get started. To keep that in mind, my first job paid $13 a week, so wow. $20 was good, especially since I was working. When I played a band concert, I got $8, so I would go to the Veterans Administration and say, oh, I played a concert, and I got $8, here it is. So then they would deduct $8 and give me the other $12, so I had my $20 per week. And then, of course, came the GI Bill. I don't think until very recently the GI Bill has been as good as it was then. There weren't Many people who went to state schools in Massachusetts, especially in Boston, Boston has these great universities, Harvard, MIT, and others. And so under this GI Bill, they paid all the tuition. Also, I had heavy fees for studying horn with a teacher from the Boston Symphony, and they paid that. And then on the other level, I would go down to the bookstore and I would get all the things I needed. If I needed to get a box of staples, I would just buy the box of staples and sign a chit, and it was mine. So it was a really great thing. Otherwise, I don't know that I could have gone to college. So it was very nice. What a great way to help a young person oh, yes. learn more, study more. So you made that transition. You studied horn before you went to the Army. You went to the Army. You had this wonderful opportunity in England. And then what interested you in the broadcasting well, industry? let me tell you, things happened in my life that turned me in different directions, directions I never thought would do. And in every one of these turns, as I can remember, it was for the better. It propelled me into something that I went into and enjoyed until I went into something else. I was in the College of Music. And Boston University had gotten one of the first educational FM stations. And so one day, we were in the same building. Some people from the radio station came over and said to us music students, would you like to be on radio? Would you like to do some performances? A couple of them said yes, and I said yes. My brother turned out to be one of the best-known radio talk show hosts. His name was Larry Glick. But it's a long time, so I doubt that many people have heard about him. But anyway, well, I figured if, out, my, yeah. if my brother Larry can do radio, I could do it too. So we went over there, and I, I learned to do radio stuff. And after a while, everybody dropped off. I was the only one there. So I kept on working with them, getting some knowledge of broadcasting and recording. And then something happened in the music school, which was the beginning of the start of my trend to, to different directions. The university pointed as dean to the music school a person who was completely 
ill-fitted for it. Besides, he wasn't a very nice guy. And as a result, some of the professors that I wanted to study with quit or resigned. They wouldn't be there. And I didn't know what to do because I was staying there to study with them. And I had already got my bachelor's degree, and I was starting my master's degree there. One day I was talking to the chief engineer of the radio station, telling him my predicament. He said, you know, there's a recording studio across the, the street, Trans Radio Recording. They're the busiest recording studio in, the, in Boston. And they're looking for an engineer. Why don't you go over there? And I said, that's crazy. You know, what would this recording studio want me? I said, well, one of the things they're doing, NBC had started broadcasting live broadcasts of Boston Symphony rehearsals. And that went on well, but there were some problems with the live broadcast. There was one situation they told me where Igor Stravinsky was conducting the rehearsal and he finished early. He said, oh, hey, gentlemen, or whatever, is, I can't do his accent. That's all, the rehearsal's over. They told me the concert master kept frankly pointing up at the microphone in the ceiling, pointing to his watch. Is there said, no, line? we're still on the air. So Stravinsky decided to carry on until they edited it. I would imagine it was probably helpful being a musician also, oh, wasn't yeah. it? They decided that instead of broadcasting it live, this is where I began to get involved. What they did is record the whole three-hour rehearsal, and they would pick out the best parts. And this famous announcer from New York, Ben Grauer, would come in and ad-lib some things, and it would make it sound like a fully produced half-hour program. I went to the recording studio wondering, why, why am I coming here? It was a busy recording studio. There were only three people. There was the boss, the engineer, there was a salesperson, and there was a woman who did everything else. The, the owner wasn't really impressed with it until the salesman said, you know, Ed's a musician. He could really help on these programs we're doing. And Charlie thought, the owner, that's right. So I became a recording engineer. Isn't it interesting the way that what seems to be maybe something that would be such a bad thing to happen in your plan, and yet it ended up turning into a real opportunity for well, you? it went even further because I got to know this producer very well. We talked a lot. I said, I really want to go back and earn my master's degree, which I had given up on. He traveled with the Boston Symphony when they went out of Boston to do concerts in other places. He said, University of Michigan, I've been there a lot of times with the orchestra. They have a great radio station. Why don't you apply there? So I applied there, and I got a job at the University of Michigan. And that's the place that I not only did my master's, but I got my PhD there. And by this time, I sort of got interested in the speech department. In the speech department, they had television. They taught television production. And I got in there. They were doing productions of music. And I got there, and they, this guy is a radio engineer, so he can do audio. And then I got to know them. And then I started taking courses in television production. That was my start in getting involved. That had to have been fascinating, too, because at that time, that was the early days of television, right? right. That was a big transition. From, it was black and white. Yes. <laughs> if you yeah. can remember that. And just broadcasted so many hours during right. the day. So anyway, they weren't broadcasting, but what they did was produce programs, which they sent out on tape to be done. And one other thing happened when I was there, that I got to know the director of the orchestra, University of Michigan Orchestra, and the opera department. And he came up to the station to do a recording session, and I, we were talking. He said, yeah, I've got to, I, mean, I have to get a chorus together to do this. And I said, oh, you have a chorus conductor? No. Well... I've done a lot of choral conducting. He said, well, why don't you come and prepare the chorus? And so I did. And for the next four years, 
I became the director of the opera chorus for the University of Michigan. So I got this music experience as a conductor. It was a real blend of your interests. My brother in Boston had died, and I went there for the funeral. And while I was there, I went to WGBH. WGBH TV and radio was one of the busiest productions. If you watch public television, you know WGBH. And while I was there, I stopped by at GBH and said, uh, say, I'd love to come back to Boston, and if there's anything here, I, I hope you'll call me. And I said, yeah, we'll call you. Don't, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> Two weeks later, they said, we got something for you. And they had gotten a large grant to do uh, films for the National Geophysical Year. And among the things they did was to commission a young composer in Boston to compose a bunch of wild music. Now, wild music doesn't mean necessarily wild. Uh, They had all this music, and they thought, well, here's this guy who's a musician, he's a recording engineer, we'll teach him how to edit film. And so I went to Boston and stayed there for a year. It was going fine, but... They had mismanagement of the money, and so that was out. And I was out of a job for six weeks. Terrible feeling. By this time, I had been married and had a two-year-old daughter. Oh, that's a scary time to be out of a job. That was a very scary time. And then I applied for a couple of jobs that came from the University of Michigan Career Center. And one was to go to Winona, Minnesota, the icebox of the nation, (laughs) to conduct the course. The other was to go to the University of Florida to teach radio and television. And the one that came through was University of Florida, for which I was grateful. And it was because of that that I got into teaching. That was my first teaching job at the University of Florida. I expected to be teaching music, but now I was teaching radio and television. And it went on from there. And you had some interesting opportunities to meet some historical figures during this recording career. The one I think most of was John F. Kennedy. Yes. He came in to our studio to do the radio commercials. And, and this was when he was running for senator? When I was back at, as, as a recording engineer at Transradio. And that was sort of interesting. Of course, I had never heard of John Kennedy or the Kennedys. Right. We traveled in different circles. <laughs> and he came in there with his entourage. He went into the studio with his producer and then... They were showing him the script, and he said, uh, Jack, uh, this is guy who wrote this. It's the first time he's written for us, and he may not know your style. Well, I was shocked because I was hearing it in the control room. You mean politicians don't write their speeches? It was an interesting experience. But also his adversary was Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the incumbent, and he was coming in there, so we had to keep them together. I have one Separate one, the forces? Right. <laughs> We had one thing that was interesting, I thought. There's a great big Italian population in Boston, and they were covering all the various dialects and, and, and languages. And so suddenly Rose Kennedy comes in wow. to record, the mother. Yes, And sure. she spoke in a very credible Italian commercials, vote for my, my son Jack. What were the, the lodges going to do? turned out that Henry Cabot Lodge had a brother, John, who was the governor of Connecticut, And he was also a famous movie star. And he married a beautiful Italian actress. And I can't think of her name. You probably wouldn't have heard it anyway so long ago. So all of a sudden, this woman would be coming coming up in a Connecticut State Police car, 
screaming up to Boston and do her recording. So anyway, all the Italian population got to hear what commercials. Is, that is very interesting. And you also recorded for a fellow that I looked up. He was quite a personality. Have became you, have a you writer. Heard Tom Lehrer? That's who I'm talking about. He, he he wrote for that was the week that was. I right. I even remember a little of that show. You know, we recorded everybody and anybody who came in. And so we got people who recorded greetings for an anniversary. We did some, I remember I recorded the first bra spot on television. Yes, and I want to talk to you about I that, re- but I, I don't want to break your line of thought. Well, I remember, <laughs> I, all I remember, there are two things I remember. One was, there were two young girls that were supposed to be about 19 years old. Right. One was a 19 or 20-year-old woman. The other one was old, I thought. (laughs) She must have been 30 years old. Oh, so old. So old. old. And I thought, but, you know, I don't know why they got an old woman like that (laughs) until I heard her speak, and she had a a 19, 20-year-old voice. Well, was it somewhat scandalous at the time to have a bra commercial on the radio? Maybe the only bra spot on radio. Wow. All I remember is how how I love my form eight, form eight, form eight. That's all I remember, <laughs> and that's all I will sing. <laughs> I like that. So did was there something else that you were going to say about, oh, about Tom, Tom before I interrupted yeah. you? I just had to talk about that bra commercial when I heard that. <laughs> A guy came in, you know, people rent time. He came in, and he said, I'm going to sing some songs and play piano. So I set up the microphone, go back in the control room, when you're a recording engineer, much of the time you're not listening to content. You want to listen, is, is the balance good? Is, is he on mic and things like that? Uh, no crackles and things like that. Nobody hitting mics like I've done a couple of times. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden I found myself listening to it. And so it turned out that this was a man I never heard of. He was a master's student at that time studying mathematics at Harvard University. And he made a lot of extra money going around to nightclubs and things, playing these songs. I did a presentation for Ollie last year, and it was about my recording experiences. And one of them, I played Tom Lehrer Records. And I thought, nobody would have heard this. I played it, and I saw people mouthing the lyrics. <laughs> they knew it so well. And I said, oh, I'm running out of time. That's all I'll do. And they said, no, no, no play No, you them. must continue. So, so anyway, that was my experience. But that recording helped to become a national star. And as you said, he went on. That was the week that was that uh, NBC live program. He wrote songs specifically for that. Yeah, quite a talent. I I enjoyed reading about him. He was an interesting fellow. And so you mentioned that you were teaching radio and TV, and I know you've taught at several universities. I got a call from a friend of mine who had come down to Dallas to be music director for Temple Emmanuel, and he asked if I would like to come back to the music. And I said yes. So that's when I left and became music director for about three years. There were some great moments. For instance, I conducted a combined chorus of 80 or 90 people with 40 members of the Dallas Symphony. And when you're conducting members of the Dallas Symphony, they make a conductor sound very, very good. Oh, and I did that. that's wonderful. And after a while, I decided I really belonged in a university setting. I yeah. miss, miss the students and others. Is that when you started at UNT? When I came down to Denton in 1970, the school was much smaller. The town was 40,000 instead of 135,000 now. The university was 17,000 instead of 60 or 70,000. 
there wasn't very much, but they had a great reputation for turning out people in radio and television. I came down to teach there and ain't never left. And as I hear it, you actually were responsible for a major overhaul in the program. Right. I didn't like the program. It was a very unrelatable program, and I had gone to some really good universities and put that in. And so uh, we started with two and a half faculty members with black and white equipment when everybody was using color already. And it's gone into, I will say that the radio, TV, film department, now Media Arts, is one of the best programs in the country. It has a really marvelous reputation. I, I think a very big part of it. And you were also director of UNT's radio station, KNTU. KNTU. Yeah, and that came as part of my job, really. At that time, we were division. I was director of the division of radio, television, film, and that included the radio station. So I used some of my radio instincts there. So with all your vast experience, what are some of the primary things you believe a person should be aware of as they strive to be competent and professional in the field of broadcasting? I'm ready to answer that question. Are you? Yeah. There were two things I think of to answer that. One was when parents would come in or students would say, should I go into broadcasting? And I said, I'm going to tell you the same thing that I would tell a person who comes to me and asks if he or she should go into movies or drama. If you have to ask, maybe you shouldn't. These are the toughest, most competitive, most insecure jobs of all kinds. You have to have the passion. And you have to have the passion. Nothing is going to take you away from that. And if you just think it'd be fun, I don't think you should do it. One woman called me and she said, my daughter would like to go into broadcasting. And uh, what do you think? I said, well, is she thick-skinned? Oh, no, she's very sensitive. I said, no, she's not going into going into broadcasting. Not the the field for her. when you do something bad or stupid... They let you know. And there's so much competitiveness in there. So you have to, if you want to go into music performance, if you want to go into drama, if you want to go into movies, if you want to go into broadcasting, you better want to do that and nothing else. And I've said that for about 30 years. That sounds like good advice. It sounds like something people should keep in mind when they're making those choices because there certainly are different jobs around that field that they could go to, but I could see where you'd have to have a really strong sense of who you are and what you think you should be doing. Now, you also did a variety of public affairs shows. I'm thinking of perhaps KXAS-TV in Dallas and WFAA. Uh, You had an incredible show on suicide that was recognized by the Council for Advancement and Support of Education for a very prestigious achievement award in the category of television programs and announcements. I was proud of that. As as you should be. What what an important topic. Really had some very helpful information. How did I get into that? Not many people get into television on camera. It just happened. We got time to tell you how it happened? Sure. Okay, I'll tell you how it happened. My first summer I was here in 1970, I had gone to take my students over to Channel 8. They were the really the dominant station out here, show them around. And I got to know them at the station. And so my first summer session, I wasn't teaching them. And so I went down to the station, WFAA Channel 8, and I said, you know, I'm going to be free during the summer. Do you mind if I come around the station and just look around and learn because I haven't worked really in a real big TV station and I haven't worked with color equipment. And they said, well, I've got something better for you. They got interns. They appointed from all over the SMU, UNT, Arlington, all of them. He said, I've got one place left. 
why don't you come in as an intern? <laughs> and because you have a PhD, I'm going to pay you two fifty an hour instead of two dollars an hour. Oh boy! That what one, an opportunity! I'm, I will tell you also that two fifty an hour for forty hours during the summer with no salary was very very helpful. Oh yeah. But anyway, I, I got to know people, and one day I got a call from the, the the news director. He said we've had a program going on called News Eight Alternatives. What they did, we have debates between different high school students that wore out. Then we had them talk about different things that wore out. And we'd like you, maybe you can come up with something. And I said, you know, I did a program at the University of Florida. I wasn't in front of the camera. I was behind it, calling the shots and directing it. And I said, we had a very good program that I did at, at Florida. It was based on a series of programs by the Methodist Church. What they did was have uh, little dramas at the beginning written by professional writers, by professional actors acted by them. And then they went into a discussion. And then, since it was on television, all the dormitories and all the fraternity sorority houses watched them. And then they had discussions in their dorms or in, uh, sorority fraternity houses. And we could do something like that. And I said, you know, that would get people more interested in just another discussion program. He said, great. He said, but what are we going to do about the vignettes, the drama things? He said, uh, the news director, why don't we get people from the different universities as drama students? And that's what we did. We started the program called Alternatives, and that was the one that I'm going to talk about in March, that uh, we did programs that we thought were of interest to college men and women, but also their families. So that was it, and I had fun. It was the first time I was on the air. I said, who would be the host? And this man from Channel A says, why don't you do it? And so that worked out well. It sounds like it would be something that would be so much fun to be involved in because you could go to all different types of topics that you thought were relevant. Well, from there, uh, after about four or five years, um, one of my former students was now the news director at Channel 5, and I talked to him about this program. He talked to his manager, and they said, yeah, we'd like to do it. And they spent thousands of dollars building a set for it. So for three years, I did, we now dropped the news aid part of it and just called it alternatives. And so for three years, these programs ran on Channel 5. We had these actors from schools coming up with their different little vignettes to stoke interest to get people to watch it. And then they also presented the problem we were going to talk about. And that worked out for three years until, again, it was time for Channel 5 to do other things. You've had quite a career. I have. When I came here in 1970, I'm sure I was going to be leaving in a couple of years. And I must say that this is one of the best moves. No longer is Boston my favorite place that I want to live at. Denton has improved so much. Uh, with the universities yes. and with all the things that are here. I'm glad now I'm a Texan. And we're glad you are too. Very fortunate. And we're glad that you're a Texan helping us out here at Ollie and teaching the interesting classes that you do and spending your time to share with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. And Susan, thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. My pleasure. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Ed Glick. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. 
We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.